Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Daniel Grote, and today I'm talking to Clive Beagles and James Lowen, managers of the £1.6 billion JOHCM UK Equity Income Fund, which invests in UK dividend-paying stocks. Clive and James, thanks for joining us. Now, there's, there's no escaping that 2020 has been a very difficult year for your fund. It's lost around a third of its value and you've estimated the income investors will receive will halve. Um, Clive, you've been running funds for more than two decades and uh, James, you started in 2007. How does what stock markets have been through this year compare with previous crises? Yeah, obviously no crises are, are ever the same, but um, obviously there are often a lot of similarities. Um, you know, I guess if we look at this one, say compared to 2007, 2008, the sell-off was much quicker, much sharper. You know, that's an awful week in the middle of March. It was particularly painful, whereas I guess the great, you know, the GFC or whatever you want to call it was a much more protracted exercise. Um, I guess in that respect, it felt a bit more similar to the sort of September 11th kind of fall off, you know, a you know, very sudden event, if you like. And obviously that had a big impact on travel and hospitality in particular, which again has been replicated here. Um, big difference, a couple of big differences I would highlight. First of all, the response, the response by governments and central banks, I'd say, has been bigger and quicker than we've seen before. You know, they haven't sort of waited for the kind of pain to sort of, you know, be drawn out. You've seen very dramatic um, increases in uh, in fiscal policy in particular and individual measures, whether those be furlough schemes or, or other such things. Um, but the, big, the biggest change, I'd say, or the biggest difference this time round, previously in crises, you know, you got to a point at which investors seemed prepared to look through the sort of short-term earnings valley or disappointment and look forward to the sort of greener pastures on the other side. And whilst the overall market has done that this time, um, in the sort of more cyclical part of the market, that's definitely not happened this time round. Um, so I, I, the analogy I would say would, compared to 2009, cyclical stocks bottomed in about January 2009, and the, the earnings forecast didn't bottom until about December 2009. So people spent a year anticipating that things were going to get better. Um, this time round, that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, I don't know if that's because the market structure's changed, you've got more machines or you know ETFs or whatever which maybe just trade off sort of shorter term news flow I don't know but it's felt a much more sort of shorter term immediacy kind of driven market than, than we've seen before and that has surprised us because we'll come on and talk about the opportunities that sit in some of the stocks that, that may see life better next year and beyond but that's been the biggest change I'd say compared to previous crises I've, I've invested through. Well, and you mentioned that, that point around uh, the market's willingness to, to look through what's going on to the right at the, uh, uh, at the moment and, and look at how things may improve in you know, a year's time, say. Um, and that does seem to be, uh, that's a phenomenon that has particularly affected the area of the market where, where, you, where you tended to find your stocks in this the sort of value, cyclical kind of driven uh, area of the stock market. I mean, why is there so much more problem in that area than, than, than other areas? Um, I, I, I think obviously, we've had a, you know, it's come, I guess, at the end of a, a decade-long period of outperformance of, you know, momentum and growth styles relative to value. So it's been like that this time. It feels like there aren't many people left to, left who are prepared to do the kind of look through the value thing. I obviously, totally understand that this crisis has accelerated structural change in certain areas and certain companies were challenged by you know, technology disintermediation that, that, has, that has accelerated. But, you know, there's a whole raft of companies that aren't really a, a material threat from that, which have just fallen heavily out of favour and which people don't seem to be 
very interested in looking at. So um, I think it's just the fact that it came at the end of a decade-long trend that had been going on anyway, and I think people have just sort of, you know, written off people like us as you know, grey old, grey-haired old men who sort of are yesterday's, yesterday's generation or something. I don't know, but it feels like there's a bit of that about it. I guess there is a difference, isn't there, between uh, those stocks where you may see as you, know, you may see that they're being kind of unfairly shunned, and um, you know they're kind of lumped in this sort of value bucket that no one wants to touch anymore. There is a difference between that, isn't there, and companies where the coronavirus pandemic has does represent a structural challenge to their business, and there's a genuine question question about whether that they can survive. Um, I, I'm wondering, sort of. Uh, what it was like for you and your fund and the stocks that you held uh, in, in the teeth of the crisis and, and whether there, there were companies that you looked at and just thought, this isn't going to work anymore? When we uh, were in the sort of March, April, May time and we were reviewing the fund, we couldn't have our heads in the sand and we had to you know, see what was happening, see what the changes were and make appropriate changes. But we had a very small proportion of the fund that was in the teeth of the COVID storm, if you like. And the biggest change we made that uh, was in the property sector. So we reduced our property exposure. Uh, and in particular, we sold Hammerson. Now, property has been directly impacted, like everyone can see, but there's also second and third derivative impacts because valuations fall and then leverage rise. And we've seen with Hammerson, uh, three or four months after we sold it, it had to do a rescue rights issue. So we took action where we needed to, but we had less uh, structural issues than you might think looking at the performance. And I think that goes back to style issues. So the things we've been uh, sort of adding to on the front foot are those uh, companies that are taking market share because of uh, COVID. So DFS is a good example where its main competitor went bankrupt or companies where They've got a good business model, good management, but they've been temporarily impacted by COVID, like WPP. I mean, I guess there are two, there are two sides of um, uh, the uh, the impact of the stock market on on, on the stocks that you hold and, and on your funds' performance. Um, you have the uh, the capital return performance. We, we, we talked about um, the loss that's been experienced there, also on on, on the income side and. You know, if you look at the UK stock market um, globally, it's done it's done worse than than other markets have, and within the UK stock market, it's dividend stocks that have that have performed uh, worse. Um, so you had that estimate um, from earlier in the year that um, you were expecting the funds income to fall by fifty five percent. Is that is that sort of still where you where you see things? Yeah, so we we do a lot of work in terms of monitoring and predicting the fund dividend. And we came out about uh, four or five months ago, like you said, with a range uh, that we thought the fund dividend would fall this year. It's 45 to 55 percent. So the 55 percent you just mentioned was at the high end of that range. We think and the latest uh, view we've got is we're going to be around the middle of that range. So it stayed pretty constant uh, over the last uh, four to five months. And what we've started to see in the last uh, sort of four to five weeks is, I'd, I'd say, stirring up a dividend commentary by companies. So we've seen a number of companies uh, come back a bit quicker than we would have thought. So Aviva, the insurer, uh, WPP, that stock I mentioned uh, a minute ago, both of those came back. A few small caps have come back. And then uh, in the last probably two to three weeks, I think there's a uh, there's definitely a tonal shift uh, where more companies are now talking about, you know, making modest uh, dividends, you know, with a full year 
uh, results. Clive and I are quite optimistic. We might see a few banks uh, do the same. We've seen Close Brothers, a smaller bank, come back to the dividend list. So there's a, there's a few uh, straws in the wind that are more positive. Yeah, I think next year, next year is harder, harder to be more precise about how, how much the dividend might grow by because the, the, the return, some companies' return of dividends to a sort of normalised payout may straddle halfway between calendar 2021 and calendar 2022 because most companies pay obviously a larger final dividend. and That may not actually be paid until um, the start of the calendar year 2022. So... I think more, I mean, in that regard, we're likely to see strong growth both in 21 and in 22. And just talking about your, your, your smaller company exposure, uh, I mean, you've, you've talked about that in, in the commentary that you put out to investors, and that's an area of the market that you're, uh, that you're quite excited about, um, albeit one that, um, uh, you know, in recent months you have reined in after what we saw with the, uh, with the Woodford Equity Income Fund. I just wonder if you could, if, if you can talk through that a bit. Um, you know, not just why you're excited about um, that area of the market, why that's an area where you feel you need to impose some kind of self-restraint, if you, if you will. Um, uh, you know, given the pretty well publicised um, issues with with uh, Woodford Fund, uh, which was forced to spend and uh, is now winding up um, because it had a lot of these um, illiquid and, and hard to trade smaller companies um, that become when people want to withdraw their money. But I think important to say out for us small caps are not sort of new startup, you know, businesses that are trying to, you know, have some big breakthrough in the biotech world or they're going to be some sort of, you know, IT disruptor that may or may not fail, but everyone's trying to do it. These are just these are often very well established businesses have been around for a long time. They just happen to be quite modest market capitalization. James mentioned DFS as a company and that sits in our small cup area. Or you know, it's lots of stocks in the building and construction um, sector that we own that you know quite big in their in their sector, but just quite small market cap. Or maybe a couple of names people wouldn't have heard of, like a company called Randall and Quilter, which is a specialist insurer, but really good at what they do and growing very fast, um, both in the UK and the, in the US. So they're not so you know sometimes small cap could be a bit misinterpreted. So so why have we got so much of those sort of names? Just because the stock market's given up on them. It's partly because of what we just talked about. You know, the market, you know, people become so obsessed about liquidity. You know, so when we look at the valuation universe, you, know, you go through the universe, you find sort of cheap stocks. And then once you get to sort of below five, six, seven hundred million market cap, you know, it's almost a parallel universe of valuation. I mean, some of these stocks are on laughably low multiples. Ironically, of course, small caps often have the best balance sheets because they don't tend to, they don't have access to, 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 to bank debt and large companies do. Um, of course, some of them may be more UK centric, and that may be part of the reason the valuations are low because everyone's been very negative about the UK, but not entirely. You know, some of our small caps actually are very international businesses. So um, yeah, that's why we've got, you know, 16, 17, 8, 17.5% of the fund invested in these sort of names, because we wouldn't take on the illiquidity premium unless we thought the shares could go up a lot. But we genuinely think most of our small caps could and should double from here. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe if we get, you know, a bit of, you know, the UK, you know, a bit of Brexit clarity or something, and maybe we'll, you know, we get some progress on, on vaccines or whatever it might be, maybe that might begin to happen. If it doesn't, I think we'll just see a number of these companies taking themselves private or being taken private because the, the, the stock market's sort of broken at the bottom end in market cap terms. You know, it's not functioning as a sort of mechanism for, for young young or small companies to raise fresh equity. No one's going to raise fresh equity. You're trading on very low multiples. 
And I guess because you're operating with that um, sort of self-imposed barrier on how much you can invest in, in these sorts of companies, uh, when you're having to kind of fund withdrawals from, from investors, um, uh, you know, which you've, you've, ha- you've been having to do in, in recent months, I think there's around 300 million that's been withdrawn over, over the last four months, then, then that enforces you, I guess, to uh, make sure that you're uh, selling off from the fund in, in, in equal, equal portions. No, absolutely. And, and I guess you, you, you asked the question earlier on about comparing it to previous crises. And we had a tough start to the 2007, 2008 sort of um, crisis, if you like. Um, we learned a lot of lessons there in terms of making sure if you are seeing outflows, just making sure you're very disciplined, making sure, if you like, you stay slightly ahead of the outflows. You know, no, you know, you don't want to be seen as a sort of false seller of stock. So and, and to make sure that the the fund retains its shape and its integrity, whether it's by market cap or by sectors. So, you know, so that investors who you know stay in the fund, obviously, hope most people do. You know, carry on investing in the same product they originally invested in. You know, you can't have a situation where the product changes because you just sell your most liquid names and people are left with the rest. So we've been very, very disciplined about that. I mean, it's very. It's, I mean, sometimes it's heartbreaking to be selling. You know, we're having to you know selling down some of these small caps and the valuations are so laughably low you know and the companies come you know the companies go you want to understand why we're reducing our holding and the, and the, the same but it's the right thing to do to keep the shape of the fund the same and we have to say having having in particular um gone through 2007 2008 um you know we we know what we need to do we know what you need to do to stay ahead of it what would you say to to, to those investors who um you know do feel like throwing in the town and on, on, on kind of value strategies because you know it's been such a long period where growth and, and, and momentum and yeah, expensive expenses uh, have led the way in the stock market and and now we've had this you know what one of the things i guess that people could look to from value strategies would be that they're cheap and if there is this there is a big stock market crash maybe they will get um hit than, than others and obviously we've had precisely the opposite happen with the nature of, of this this crash this year um, what can you say to investors who, who do feel that you know this is this is the last straw we've talked about small caps uh, we think they've got tremendous upside Clive talked about most of them could double you know and then you go through our large caps uh, the big areas banks banks could definitely double you know they're trading on 0.3 0.4 times book value our insurance stocks have got significant upside. Clive touched on mining, you know, tremendous upside when you look at the valuation. So we are very, very optimistic, you know, as we look forward. It's been a very difficult uh, sort of six to nine months, as you said at the start, uh, but we've made the changes we need to. Um, and we can now see, you know, in the very near term, like Clive and I have talked about, some of the catalysts that could sort of unleash this. So looking forward, uh, we're, we're cautiously optimistic. Well, I guess you've got history on your side in the sense that when these um, episodes have happened before uh, and when your fund has uh, gone through a, a difficult loss-making period, it's been followed by um, outperformance. Um, uh, uh, but I guess, you know, if you look at sort of how um, uh, value stocks have, have performed over recent months, there do tend to be these sort of short, sharp jumps for two, three weeks um, where it seems like m- maybe this is it. M- maybe this is the turning point um, for value strategies. But um, presumably it, it would need to be something big like those sort of catalysts that, that you're talking about to, uh, to to spark something more long lasting. 
I don't think that's I think that's probably right. I mean, I think it's been reason it's been sharp but short lived is sharp because very few people own stocks of this type. So when they go up, you know, it's sort of quite painful. But then, you know, the sort of you know, the sort of momentum brigade seem to win over again. We talked about the three things that could happen. They could all happen this year, before the end of the year even. Brexit, a vaccine and Biden clean sweep. Um you know, and I think if we got all three of those, you know, our fund would do extremely well. If we got two out of three, we'd do quite well. If we got none, we'd probably carry on struggling. Um, uh, but the reality is that what we really need, which is linked to those, is for inflation expectations to begin to rise. That's been the real driver of why growth momentum as a style has been such a dramatic outperformer because inflation's been so low. Uh, and I know we're not. I know in this very short term, COVID is you know deflationary because we have more people unfortunately made unemployed and so forth but but there are lots of you know there are lots of issues now coming into play we think you know COVID you know definitely has led to more mistrust of China in particular so we think there'll be more onshoring you know the reversal of globalization going on we think they're obviously much more focused on income inequality because which was already getting more focus anyway think that's a Trump one that's probably had the Brexit result but we're going to have more and more all around the world going up again that's quite inflationary um, you're obviously beginning to see sort of commodity prices rising, you know, copper prices at a five-year high, for example, um, all of which is sort of building to some sort of inflationary pressures. 